If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 is where we are going to be today. Uh, and, and as you're turning there, I'll kind of share a story. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about how summertime is often a time that we are a bit closer to creation, right? It's the time of year that we go hiking, we go swimming, we go traveling, uh, and it's, it's really beautiful, especially here this time of year, and, and over the next few months, we can sort of expect that. Uh, well, I, I have a story, a summertime story. It was the summer after I graduated from college, all right, I went on my very first solo camping trip, and it was very fun. It was a chance for some quiet reflection after having finished school and gone through all of that. I brought my Bible, my journal, a tent, some food, and my hiking shoes, right? And I was ready. Uh, so I went to a state park. Uh, this was in the Lost Pines region of Texas. And the first day that I was there, I went on this long hike for most of the day and, and just walked. It was really fun. And normally this would be really a, a truly immersive experience surrounded by the greenery and the trees and all of that, but it, it was a little bit different. One year before this camping trip that I went on, a wildfire had raged through this particular region of Texas. And so instead of being surrounded by big pine trees, there were all these dark, ashen stumps and felled branches all around me, right? Instead of the fresh smell of the forest, there was that smoky smell like a campfire the morning after or something, right? And that was just sort of everywhere around on all sides. And I was walking through all of this, and, and I, I could have been, maybe I was a little disappointed at first, like, oh yeah, I should have thought about this whenever I, you know, decided to come here. You know, of course, there were these fires that were going on, but I will never forget this particular site that I came across while I was on this hike, because I was, I was walking along, and then a little bit off to the side of the trail, there was this really big kind of blackened stump there, but all around it were these incredibly bright green shoots all over the place. It almost looked alien. It was so bright, this new growth that was there. I, it stopped me in my tracks, and I just kind of stared at it. It's like it was glowing amidst all of the ashes everywhere. It was amazing. And after sort of marveling at it for a while, I kept on that hike, and, and along the way, I would notice some other patches of some really bright green spots scattered around. And it was really amazing. Later that night, I went back to my campsite and struck up a conversation with the guy who was camping a couple sites over, and he was super into forestry and things like that. And when I told him about that sort of bleak, ashen landscape that I had gone through during the day, he responded and he said, yeah, it looks bad right now. But ultimately, these fires will actually be good for the forest. And I was like, what? And he says, 10 years from now, this place is going to be greener than it has ever been before. So I guess I'm due to go back and see if that's true. Um, it's not quite been 10 years since then. 
but, but this is something that I uh, begin to walk away from and learn. Earlier this year, Caitlin and I actually had a similar experience, and we were visiting Pepperdine in California. Some of you know this past year there were some really intense wildfires down in that part of California. And while we were there kind of exploring some of the areas, there was one garden that we went to on campus, and we saw some old charred plants that had some green new growth on it. I actually have some photos uh, of it. Here's one. So there's this dark sort of blackened branch, but then wrapping around it, spiraling around it, is this new green vine. Um, Go to the next one. Uh, This is another one that there's actually these flowers that are shooting off the sides of it. Um, and then one more photo that I have there uh, was this, you know, old blackened plant of some sort has this new growth, all these flowers that are just bursting around it, swallowing it up. This is amazing, right? That out of these fires comes this new growth. These experiences have helped me to understand some things. First, it makes sense of some of the work that my stepbrother did several years ago when he was in the forest service. He would go and start these controlled fires in the forest, and I never understood how that was a good thing, right? Let's go take care of the forest by burning some of it. That sounds really counterintuitive, Um, but if any of you have done any gardening or landscaping, then you know that from time to time, you have to prune your plants. You have to trim them back. Uh, You have to cut back some of the old, unhealthy growth and make way for new growth. Well, it turns out that wildfires are kind of like that on this huge scale. Instead of pruning a plant, wildfires prune kind of an entire forest all at once. And afterwards, there is opportunity for new, fresh growth up from the ashes. So last week we began this series talking about the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does. And we looked at the creation story and saw some images that are used to talk about the Spirit. We considered the images of wind, water, and womb. The Spirit is blowing and flowing and birthing new life. But I'm sharing this story this morning about forest fires and new growth because it contains a couple more images that Scripture uses to talk about the Spirit. You see, Acts chapter 2 describes the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, and it says that there came a rush like a violent wind, but it also says that tongues of fire appeared among them. And throughout Scriptures, we see this image of fire as representing the presence and the Spirit of God popping up. We, we have the burning bush that Moses encountered. Uh, we have the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. By night, there's the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven onto the altar, if you remember that story. And, and there's John the Baptist who talks about Jesus coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is another image of how the Holy Spirit works among the people of God. But it is not merely a violent or destructive kind of fire. 
It's the fire of purification and pruning that makes way for new growth. And that's another image used of the Spirit in Scripture. The fire of the Spirit makes way for the fruit of the Spirit to grow. So that's the passage that we're looking at together today. Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to begin in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Live by the Spirit, I say. And do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, for these are opposed to one another, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirit, which burns within us, which grows and blooms within us. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage comes from a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia to correct some things that had gone badly wrong. The church in Galatia was primarily made up of non-Jewish people who had formerly worshipped in pagan cults whose worship practices sometimes included wild, drunken gatherings, lewd sexual acts, and other forms of carousing, as the text put it, right? And this was just part of their culture. This is just what happens, something to participate in when they're not on the job, just getting by, right? And some of the Galatian Christians still actively participated in these kinds of things and have simply kind of tacked on going to church as another part of their lives. But there were others who genuinely were trying to figure out, how do I follow the call of the gospel amidst this kind of culture? And so to tell them how to do that, there was another group of folks that had sort of swooped into the church in Galatia. This is a group of Jews 
who were telling the rest of the church that in order to really follow Christ, what they needed to do was really become Jews and follow the law. And Paul is furious about this because he knows that the gospel is not only for the Jewish people, but for all people, which he says in chapter 3, verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. The gospel is for everyone, right? And so throughout this letter, Paul has some really biting remarks for the Galatians. In chapter 1, he begins by saying, I am astonished at you. And then he pronounces a curse on those who have turned away from the gospel. In chapter 3, he calls them fools, and he says, who has bewitched you? And then in chapter 5, he says, you were running well, but someone has prevented you. And all of this leads to our passage here, where Paul addresses the pagan-living Galatians and the law-insisting Jews. And he begins to try to set them straight. And the answer that Paul brings to the sinful practices of the pagans and the harmful theology of the Jews is the Spirit of God. So our passage opens. Live by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. So essentially, what Paul is saying to the Galatians is that those drunken parties, those lewd acts, those sinful desires all need to stop. Don't follow those desires. Instead, live by the Spirit. And at this point, I'm sure all of those Jewish people among them are nodding their heads, yes, exactly, Destroy those desires. Follow the law. But then Paul goes on in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. So Paul sets both of them straight, and he directs both of them to the Spirit. And so I wonder, if you were to kind of map yourself onto the spiritual terrain of Galatia, where would you fall? Right? Maybe closer to the Galatians who are wrestling with sinful desires amidst a culture that actually endorses and encourages them. That sound familiar? Or maybe it's a little bit closer to the Jews among them who would rather keep track of a religious checklist and enforce it upon themselves and others around them. That also might sound a little familiar. Now, the Spirit of God tends to frustrate everyone because he doesn't fit into the nice boxes of rule following. And he also absolutely won't settle for lives filled with sin. So Paul speaks of the Spirit, and at once, everyone is challenged. And I think this challenge might be one of the reasons why we've often shied away from talking about the Spirit ourselves. 
I think at the heart of this challenge is a word that we've already encountered multiple times in the text. It's this word, desire. Desire. How do you respond to desire? I guess one way to respond to desire is to give into it, right? Just blindly follow it. And when we do this, well, this can kind of lead to some of the works of the flesh that Paul talks about in the passage, right? Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, drunkenness, carousing. All of these are rooted in blind desire that aimlessly follows impulses and appetites. The word that's translated here, fornication, is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word porn. And it's a catch-all word for all manner of sexual sin. Adultery, hookups, abuse, catcalls, all of it. And then the word impurity goes beyond action into the heart of things, right? To speak of all those little things you thought of but never acted on, right? This is what Jesus meant when he said if someone looks lustfully at another person, they've already committed adultery in their heart, right? And then at the end of the list, Paul mentions drunkenness and carousing, which have to do with over-drinking and overeating, both symptoms of gluttony, one of probably the chief sins of the Western world that we never talk about. And all of this is rooted in that word that Paul said, licentiousness, right? Which is a posture that ranges from anywhere from privilege to pointlessness. On the one hand, there's privilege that says, I can do whatever I want because I deserve it. And on the other hand, there's pointlessness. I can do whatever I want because, well, nothing really matters anyways. And both of them throw off any restraint and blindly give in to and follow desire. So that's one way to respond to desire, to just give into it. But there's another way of responding to desire as well, and that is to kill it, right? If all of these desires are sinful and bad and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, then we just need to stop desiring, right? And if you've been around church very much, you've probably heard this approach. Maybe you've even been taught it as the right approach. But this approach is just what the Jews in Galatia were doing when they insisted on following the law, right? The only difference is that instead of the laws of the Old Testament, we've made up our own laws. We've insisted on them just the same. We've made our religious checklists to determine who's in and who's out, whether it has to do with drinking or dancing or instrumental music or kitchens and church buildings. We have made our laws. And these also have led to some of the works of flesh that Paul talks about. Enmities, strife, quarrels, dissensions, factions, 
right? These are all rooted in killing desire by creating our own law and enforcing it on others. And this response to desire is probably even more deceptive than the other because people do this in the name of God, right? And yet Paul says of these, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if giving in to desire is the wrong approach, and killing desire is also the wrong approach, then how do we respond to desire? I think this is why Paul directs us to the Spirit. Look back at verse 17. Paul writes, What the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. These two are opposed to each other. You see, the Spirit is not opposed to desire in and of itself. Rather, the Spirit has desires of his own. So, to those whose approach it is to just kill all desire, stop. You very well may be killing the desires of the Spirit. But to those who just give in to all those desires of the world, the problem isn't that you have desire. I would suggest it's that that desire is not nearly enough. You see, the desires of the Spirit go far beyond what the law could ever enforce and go far deeper than what the flesh could ever satisfy. So, what are the desires of the Spirit? Well, Paul describes them in verses 22 through 23, and he calls them fruit. They are love and joy and peace. They're patience, kindness, and generosity. They are faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these completely reshape our own desires. They completely reshape how we live with God, with others, and even with our own selves. You see, love, joy, and peace are all things that we cannot stir up ourselves, but we must receive from God. And when we receive them from God, they go beyond the circumstances of our lives into our very being, right? When we receive it from God, it becomes possible to love our enemies. When we receive joy from God, it becomes possible to rejoice in suffering. And when we receive peace from God, it becomes possible to have a peace that passes understanding even amidst chaos. And all of this comes from the Spirit of God. 
And then as we receive from God, our life with others becomes marked by patience, kindness, and generosity, right? We suddenly don't hold on to our time, our money, and our goodwill like we used to. Because we used to think these things were scarce. But when we receive from God, we realize they're not. So when we live in the abundance of God's Spirit, we don't run out of patience. We don't run out of kindness. And we can be good and generous people to those around us both those we know and those we don't. And as we live with that generous kindness toward others, our very character is transformed so that we become faithful, gentle, and self-controlled, right? And this is the ultimate undoing of the works of the flesh that Paul had written about. Faithfulness is opposed to impurity. Gentleness is opposed to enmity. And self-control is opposed to licentiousness. This is what he means by these are opposed to each other. The desires of the Spirit are far deeper than the desires of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit are just so much tastier than the works of the flesh. Which I think is why in verse 24, he writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the desires of the flesh do have to be killed but he doesn't stop at that. The very next verse in 25, he continues, if we live by the Spirit, then let us also be guided by the Spirit. So it's not ultimately about killing desire, but rather reshaping it, resurrecting it into the desires of the Spirit, which bring about the fruit of the Spirit. And so the call of Christ is not ultimately one to stop sinning, but rather to live by the Spirit. Jesus did say repent. He did. But what did he say after that? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? It turns out that when we live by the Spirit in the kingdom of God, that we stop sinning. But the goal is not just to stop sinning. It is to live truly in the Spirit of God. If we repent for repentance' sake, if the goal is merely to stop sinning, then we'll end up like the Galatian Jews, following the law, but still doing the works of the flesh. So my challenge to you this week is to live by the Spirit, 
don't blindly give in to desire, but don't legalistically kill it either. One practical way to do this might be to spend some more time looking through this text in a posture of confession and prayer, right? Look through that first list that Paul gave us and let it penetrate your heart, right? Don't just gloss over it, but really look at each of those words and begin to confess the works of the flesh that are in your life and receive the grace and the forgiveness of God. And then look through that second list, the fruit of the Spirit. Don't gloss over it. Let each of those sink in deep and pray to God for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So that's my challenge to you. Live by the Spirit. Be guided by the Spirit. And just like that forest hike in Texas or those California hills, let the fire of the Spirit burn in you so that the fruit of the Spirit might flourish. Amen.